to Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year, a weekly devotional series based on readings relevant to the current liturgical season. You can watch this series live on our YouTube page every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for tuning in, and now on to this week's discussion. Welcome. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to To Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year. My name is William Green, and as always, I'm joined by Pastor Brian King. We're here tonight to talk about the epistle reading for this coming Sunday, which is the commemoration of the Transfiguration. So tonight we're looking at 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 4, 6. You want to read that now, Will? Yes, please. Okay. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of. Jesus Christ. Here ends our reading. Great. Thank you, Pastor. You're welcome. So the first thing we wanted to talk about tonight was this extended veiling analogy that St. Paul is using here. And our text begins tonight with this idea that Moses was putting a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, is what verse 13 says. So first of all, maybe we can talk about what exactly Moses was doing at this time, because this this whole analogy is kind of predicated on this one practice of Moses. It is. And as we discussed, it almost seems, as you and I discussed, it almost seems that Paul is taking this idea of a veil and then applying it to different aspects of these spiritual concepts. Mm -hmm. So I think the best thing to do, if you don't mind, let's look at Exodus 34, where this takes place. Sure. Just read a little bit from verse 29 down to verse 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them 
all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. I, we're assuming the hymn is God. Right. So it almost seems like he just wasn't walking around the encampment with the veil on. Or that he was, I mean. Yes, right. He wasn't, he wasn't wearing it when he was talking to God. And it doesn't necessarily seem like he was wearing it when he was trying to speak to the people. Right. But he was right. wearing it to cover this super sunburn, if you want to call it that. <laughs> yeah, right. That he, that he got from being in God's presence. Right. And, right. And, then, and then you get the idea from our text that um, that the Israelites would not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Namely, he's he gets the law, his face is shining, but that's not going to last. Yes. Is what Paul's saying. Right. And one okay. interesting thing to note here is uh, it's easy to see why this text was chosen for Transfiguration Sunday, right? This is obviously kind of like a precursor of what happens during the Transfiguration what we're seeing in Moses, right? Yeah, yeah. You well, first of all, you have, you have Moses and Elijah there at Transfiguration, right? Mm-hmm. And and but then you have Jesus who was transfigured and shining. Yeah. And and yes, you're absolutely right. And this is Moses a bit, for lack of a better term, a bit transfigured. Right. Which right. Light than saying badly sunburned. <laughs> right. Probably more theological too. But but basically, he was he, God's glory was reflecting off his face. Mm-hmm. Even though this glory of God had to do with the giving of the law, right, and that's going to come to that whole Old Testament time is going to come to an end, right? Yeah, and and seeing this parallel is important, especially given the context of the section we just read, because the preceding verses had given even a little bit more context to what we're talking about here, right? Because it mentioned the glory of uh, the law and um, this glory of this passing thing. So like kind of the ministry of Moses, we talk about the ministry of Moses being sort of the giving of the law and that coming with its own sort of glory as manifested through how Moses looked after he was given the law. Right. Um, I think Paul was saying just before this, that if that came with glory and that was a fleeting thing, a passing thing, imagine the glory that this sort of new ministry that, the apostolic age of ministry will come with when it's not a passing thing. It's a permanent thing. Yeah. So the glory is more permanent, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're thinking about verse seven. So I just backed up ahead of our reading. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end. will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Now, we have to just give a commercial interruption. Uh, like the end of commercials where they give you the legal description and, and, and what interest rate you're going to pay for that new car they're convinced you buy. <laughs> this is God dealing through Moses with a group of people. Mm-hmm. And the glory is in God's righteousness and, and in his law. Right. But we dare not think that somehow people in Moses' day didn't have hope or that they weren't saved the way we are. Mm-hmm. 
but God was dealing with a group in a different way and, and wanting to maintain the integrity of that group for the purpose of, of his son being born through them. Right. Right. Okay. So he still always deals with individuals the same way, but this is a group thing going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. That's helpful to keep in mind for sure. So, okay. Now we understand a bit of the practice that Moses was doing. So he, he came down from the mountain. He, his face was transfigured in, in a way. Right. And then I guess that was like freaking out the Israelites. And They're so, scared. yeah. So he's veiled in everyday life. Uh, and, and then he removes the veil when he goes back in and speaks with God. Right. That's yeah. what's happening here. Yeah, and we don't think this went on for 38 years either. Okay. okay. Yeah, it, it it was for a time and and that that yeah, we don't we don't we don't get repetitions of this that are always mentioning the veil. No. Right. It's right. brought up, it's told, it's explained. Moses was his face was shining with that reflected glory uh because he was in God's presence, mm-hmm. which is which would have been scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, for sure. And so now Paul is using this thing that Moses did as a sort of example for uh, almost like this veil that's covering the gospel message in some way or covering people's eyes from clearly seeing the gospel, it seems. Yes. And that, so he's, he's saying this concept of a veil, which obscures something. Right. And applying it to the people in his day who cannot see the gospel. Right. And that's where verse 14 comes in. So he says, for th- to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yeah. And so what what is the veil being referred to here? Is this like, I, I see kind of two ways of reading this. One is that maybe the veil can refer to some particular individual blindness to the gospel. So a court of, uh, sort of like um, obdurance or something like that. But then there's another reading I can see here where is he referring to like the whole Old Testament age where everyone is kind of only seeing the gospel in this this veiled way. And it isn't until after the revelation and the incarnation of Jesus that that veil is removed. And so, you know, in, in one sense, we can talk about like everyone during the Old Testament having this sort of veil and only seeing the gospel in a sort of dimmed way. Whereas now we, after the revel- full revelation of Jesus, see it in an unveiled way. But then there's this other way of looking at it where there are people even now, and this is what I think he references later on, that are kind of even still looking through a veil uh, of, of unfaithfulness, right? Where they're not able to clearly see this gospel message even after the sort of full revealing. So which of these interpretations do we kind of lean toward here? Let's pull a magic trick and merge them. Okay. Okay. So you can say that the people of the Old Testament didn't have the full clear vision of the gospel because it hadn't taken place yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And, but those in the New Testament era who, who have that veil, now they're not kind of not seeing the gospel at all. Right. So it's, it's like they're veiled because of when they lived, mm-hmm. but now the people who are veiled are not seeing at all because it's been, it's been revealed. They've just refused to move on and, and understand the, the gospel. Right. Uh, it, so we could say that uh, getting, using another car analogy, we could say that the people in the old Testament are in the automobile factory. Mm-hmm. 
they see the transmission, they see the motor, they see the body panels, they see the car being put together and they, they get it and they're excited about it because it's, it's cool. Mm-hmm. But we in the new Testament get to go to the car dealership and drive a new car away. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people who are bailed would say, well, no, those things are never going to run. And, and, and they don't, they don't go get a car. Right. That's kind of it. No, the, the Old Testament people, they see it. They see all the pieces coming together and God gives them faith and gives them salvation mm-hmm. through their, their faithful knowledge and understanding. But there are people who at, at Paul's time didn't want to move past. They didn't want to leave the factory. Right. Right. So it's almost a both and because in yeah, some I, sense the veil. So when Christ died, the, the veil of the temple was torn into, Right. And so that's kind of a signification of the removal of the veil. But then in verse 15, Paul, of course, writing after Jesus had died and rose from the dead, said, even to this day when Moses has read, a veil lies over their hearts. So certainly something is still happening there. And and something's still amiss. So when that veil in the the temple, that was what separated the general part from the Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. So when that's torn in two then, you know, God's grace is revealed, we could say. Yeah. But those who want to still keep that veil on, they don't see it. Yeah. They don't see it. It's There's kind of like an interesting parallel between like objective and subjective sanctification here, it seems. Because there's like, there, there's like this objective component to this where um, there is sort of this, uh, we've talked about this before, um, not a uh, secret aspect of the gospel in the Old Testament, but it wasn't fully revealed to the people as it was in the New Testament, right? Um, they're, they're seeing it more dimly than than we do. Yeah, and even Paul in the New Testament says, now I see dimly, but then face to face. So yeah, right. we'll, we'll see more when we're in heaven. Right. The Old, the Old Testament people got God's word. They received God's word. They could be brought to faith. They could have faith in the coming Messiah. But they didn't know the details that that are revealed in in the New Testament, right? They, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't there for them? Which is, you know, it's it's God. You, God had to lay this out over time. It was it was something that needed to be done, mm-hmm. and He's not going to do it all the day after Adam and Eve fall into sin, right? Okay, right. so the veiling that lays over people's hearts and minds that. That I think is what we have to talk about tonight. Yeah, exactly. And this is kind of a confusing analogy because uh, the veil is being used as this analogy for like an obdurance that keeps people from understanding what God is trying to reveal. Right. But at the same time, um, like Moses was the one wearing the veil (laughs) in, in the analogy. And we're not saying that he was, like um, lacking faith or anything like that, or he had this sort of uh, obstinate unbelief. And so how do we make sense of this? Uh, I think you mentioned before that he's, he's just trying to kind of fixate on the, the veil element in itself. And that's kind of the point of comparison for the analogy here. Yeah. I think the point of comparison for the analogy is Paul says, look, Moses wore a veil to conceal some of the glory of a system that was coming to an end. Mm. We're not going to do anything veiled. We're going to proclaim the full whole gospel. 
if people don't get it, it's really like they have a veil covering their eyes and they can't see it. I see. That So he uses that veil idea, hiding the glory that's coming to an end. That ministry comes to an end. We have the New Testament apostolic ministry. That's full-blown revelation. Mm-hmm. I'll say no, no, nothing veiled, but people who don't receive it are veiled. I see. Right. We're just taking that idea of a veil and kind of applying it in a couple of different places. Right. Right. Now, this is a good segue to get to the latter part of the reading here. Let, let's deal with verse three. So he continues this analogy and he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Uh, so let's deal with that part first. So he talks about even in his age, the gospel being veiled in some respect. And this is the sort of belief that, that you were referring to earlier then, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's the whole, I, the whole problem. He uses something that took place in the old Testament as an example or an idea. Yeah. Well, you know, Moses face was veiled, not showing the glory of God. Well, today people, they must have a veil on because they can't see the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's kind of getting right to the heart of that, that issue. Um, not so much the veil, but the problem. And he's talking about unbelief, not seeing. We talk about, we, we often use the idea of sight when we talk about faith, right? Right, right. That's important. So now let's look at verse four. So here he talks about one of the people responsible for the veiling. And this is where the title of our episode comes tonight. So he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, okay, let's first of all, deal right off the bat with this phrase, the God of this world. Now in our ESV translation, God there is lowercase. So I presume we're not talking about the one true God, right? No, we're, we're talking about the enemy. Right. Okay. Now let's talk about, this use of this phrase with respect to, so we're talking about Satan then. Yes. And so, so uh, Paul here is calling Satan, the God of this world. That is not how we usually talk about Satan today. No. And we usually, if we think about the God of this world, we think about the triune God. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, yeah. But we, you know, the world and it, all of its inhabitants are coming to a sorry end as it were. Um, but here, the the Greek, as you as you commented on before, it's the god of this age. Mm, mm-hmm. the, the, the word is not cosmos, which it would normally be. It's aeon, really. Right. The god of this age. So who's the god of this age? Well, first off, then, it's a god who's, who's temporally limited. Mm-hmm. God is eternal. Right. We can't say god is the god of a certain age or a specific place because god is the god of all for all time. Right. So just a couple of thoughts to bear in mind. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we, C.S. Lewis said you make two mistakes about the devil. One is you can minimize his power and not take him seriously. Mm Mm-hmm. The other mistake is that you spend too much time thinking about him and dwelling on him. Right. Okay. So you can't get, don't go down that rabbit hole and spend your time worrying about the devil, thinking about the devil. 
But on the other hand, uh, be sober-minded, be watchful, quoting First Peter, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Mm-hmm. And in John 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Right. Jesus is talking about the devil. Right. So in some ways, the I mean, the Bible does talk about the ruler of this age or of this world as being the enemy of God, the mm-hmm. devil. But what is that? What does that mean? Like what? What's the significance? How does that relate to the something being veiled? Mm-hmm. What's the one thing? This is not rhetorical. It's a question. What's the one thing the devil wants to do? To he wants to obscure the gospel. Yeah. He wants to keep them out of God's family. In Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Mm-hmm. So we understand that God gives us his spirit through these means, through his word. Whether it's the word alone or with water and baptism or with bread, and wine, Lord's Supper, that God uses his word to communicate his love, mercy, grace, forgiveness to us to call us to faith. So what the devil does is he attacks the word of God. Right. In a couple different ways. One, to get people to scoff at, well, how would how would people know what the word of God is? That Bible can't be the word of God. Mm-hmm. Or the other way is to try to convince people that, well, parts of it are wrong. Mm-hmm. And if parts of it are wrong, then you can't trust any of it. Right. Because how do you ever know what part's right or wrong? Right. And 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 then, of course, the devil's going to work to make things of this world or of this age more attractive than his word, mm-hmm. than God's word. Mm-hmm. So that that's how that's how the devil's going to work, because he knows if he can keep the, the the word out of people's hearts and minds, they won't they won't be drawn to faith. Right. And that's the weak link. And when God operates by means, he can be disobeyed. He can be ignored. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, when God operates by means, it's not his outright power. He's working very gently. And so the devil works on that thing alone. What did he say to, to Eve? What was the first thing he said? Did, did God really say? Right? Did God really say? Yeah. And so, you know, people will talk to me. They know I'm a pastor, blah, blah, blah. And they'll say, well, did God really say? <laughs> and I've said this before on, on our broadcast that I just want to cringe and laugh at the same time, but this is how the devil attacks. Mm-hmm. He, he did it with Eve. That's what convinced her to disobey God. The devil still does that today. He's going to, he's going to try to get people to doubt God's word. Right. Right. And so this is what we kind of wrestle with. You mentioned that good CS Lewis quote where we don't want to put too much emphasis on the devil but we also don't want to exclude him entirely from the equation. We want to acknowledge his existence and recognize the sort of power or authority that he does have over the world. Like it's, it's one thing to call him the ruler of this age or the ruler of this world. And it seems to me a different thing to call him the God of this age, the God yeah, of this world. It's, and it's, like, it's harsh. It is. And like we were looking at some of the church father commentaries on this. And some of even the most well-respected church fathers were unwilling to even concede that this was referring to Satan, right? It was, um, I think it was John Chrysostom who said that, no, he's talking about, uh, he's talking about the triune God here. And he's, he's talking about how the triune God 
like does like blind people to some of these truths, right? Yeah. Yeah. He says the God of this world may refer neither to the devil nor to another creator. And, and we're like, well, no, actually it's pretty clear from the context. But <laughs> yeah. He's referring, he's referring to, to the, the devil, to the accuser, to God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it's interesting. One of the, one of the best quotes we found from this, from a, from a church father was actually Pelagius who seemed to have gotten this right. He acknowledged straight away that this, that uh, Paul is talking about the devil here. Um, and so it's interesting. There was, uh, obviously disagreements about how this ought, ought to have been interpreted even among the church fathers. And so it's clear that even some of them were a little bit uncomfortable with this sort of language with respect to Satan, it seems. Yeah. But, but the Bible has used that, that term lords and gods in a, in a generic way. Yeah. And, yeah. and God refer to God. You know, uh, we use the term God which isn't God's name. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So we, we do that too. Yes. But first John three says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So how's God, how's Jesus going to destroy the works of the devil? First off, he's going to proclaim God's word. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he's going to give his life as the ransom for us disobedient children who want to listen to the enemy of God more than God. Right. So he does right. both. But 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 first and foremost, I mean, and and the Bible calls Jesus the, the Word, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's the Word made flesh, and he's come to communicate God's love and mercy. So uh, even when Peter uh, starts to rebuke Jesus or rebuke him about the way he's going to end his ministry on the cross. Um, Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Mm -hmm. So um, Peter was not going along with the cross and resurrection. Right. So, of course, the devil doesn't want us to believe in Jesus' cross and resurrection either. Right. So he's going to attack. And, and of course, the doctrine of um, Christ's atonement and his resurrection his virgin birth, those were attacked all the time by God's enemies. Right. right. And if, if you can just sprinkle doubt, sprinkle doubt, sprinkle doubt. But but I'll, I'll, I'll say to myself and anyone who will listen, if you hear someone say, did God really say, remember whom they're quoting. Right. Yeah. They're quoting the devil. Yeah, exactly. It's unbelievable that people don't get that. So. Yep. Okay. So let's talk about how we ought to think about this kind of practically. So it is the case we don't want to put too much emphasis on the devil and his authority over this world, and we don't want to ignore it. So what what is kind of the nature and extent of his authority? So like there's there, there are some people who clearly like give the devil too much credit. And even in like Lutheran circles, I sometimes hear the devil talked about as if he's like omniscient and that if he's like almost totally omnipotent too, and kind of causing people to sin in certain ways. There's this really good illustration in the, the Disney adaptation of the hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, are you, are you familiar? Have you seen it? I haven't seen that. The, the villain is struggling with uh, lust for this woman. And in one of the songs he sings, there's a line where he says, it's not my fault that in God's plan, he made the devil so much stronger than a man. 
And so he's kind of chalking up all of his shortcomings to the power that the devil has over him as a, as a human. And so that, that seems to me to be wrong. Like we're ultimately, at least in some sense, responsible for our own sinfulness, right? We are, we are responsible. Yeah. And so how do, how do we kind of walk this line? How do we acknowledge that the devil does have a sort of power and dominion over the world, but not give him a sort of undue um, credit for either our own sins or, um, you know, all of the evil that's happening in the world. Yeah. I, well, okay. I'm going to give him credit for a lot, a lot of the evil that's happening in the world. <laughs> yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> but th- you get this confusion, you know, the, the devil comes in and parades himself into God's presence. And then, and then God holds up Job as this example of perfect, well, at least human perfect righteousness and allows the devil to, as it were, toy with Job. Mm-hmm. It's a little strange. Mm-hmm. I, I don't quite understand all of that, all, all the reasons, all the whys. But there you see that the devil has some power over things. Mm-hmm. And, but for, for, I would say for most of us, the devil works to persuade. Okay, right. Uses things that are at his disposal, whether people or objects or ideas, and he attacks us Christian people with them. And, and of course, he also attacks the non-Christian with them, the, the non-Christian who may be getting close to God's word or in God's word, like the parable of the sower, the mm-hmm. devil comes and sows that seed, right? I mean, yeah. the devil comes and steals the seed that was sown right? because he, he doesn't want it to be embedded firmly in a person's heart. right? So the devil ha- does have some power right? and, and he exercises it. And, and I, I think we have to take to heart those those words that uh, we have to um, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's good advice to follow, but also understand that when you're in Christ, then you're okay. Right. But the devil's going to work at getting people to doubt the existence of God, getting people to doubt God's word, and getting people to doubt that God can love them enough to forgive them and want them to be in his family forever. Mm-hmm. Right. You see, you see this, the way the devil works on different people, how he causes them to doubt. Right. Um, you know, doubt God's love for them, doubt if they're lovable, doubt the word that gives them this, that carries the message. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just attacks, attacks, attacks. I guess what we could say are vulnerable points. Mm-hmm. I think the devil's a good tactician. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the best way to think of him as like a sort of accuser or persuader and tempter. Yeah. 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 But like, so like, maybe that's the important thing. Like we shouldn't think of him as this entity that like possesses us and causes us to act in certain ways. But right. I guess what he does is um, entice us or kind of prompt us to act in, in, in certain ways. And that's what we're meant to be mindful of according to the scriptures, right? Yeah. According to what Peter says, Hey, watch out. Mm -hmm. The devil wants you to stumble. He wants you to fall. He wants you to do the things that, that, that cause you to love other things more than God. Mm -hmm. That's really why, you know, the sinful stuff is dangerous because it, it eventually leads us to love it more than God. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what the devil tries to make all this stuff attractive. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting in the, 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 um, the scene in the Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, where the devil is walking around the crowd holding a baby. Mm. 
meant to look like somehow right or good. Interesting. Ah, it's bizarre. Yeah. Bizarre. yeah. It uh, so that the devil can be attracted to people. Yeah. And that's what was being depicted in the film. And, and we have to watch out for that. The things that are attractive aren't necessarily good for us. Right. Right. So closing thoughts, perhaps. Uh, so when Paul is talking about the God of this world here, he is referring to Satan. Yep. But of, there is, of course, a sense in which the triune God is ultimately the true God over this right. world. And he, of course, also has a sort of dominion and power over this world that far surpasses the dominion that, that Satan has. Yes. And that's a really good point. We don't want to think that, that somehow this physical realm belongs to the devil and the spiritual realm belongs to God. That's not right. Yeah, right. Christ has redeemed us in our bodies. God is still God. The, as Luther said, uh, the devil still belongs to God. Right. 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 Uh, and, that, but, and, and that's the other big thing here. It's not as if God and the devil are like at war. Right. And God is like struggling to overcome the devil. Because there were some Christian groups, especially in the Middle Ages, like the Albigensians were people who subscribed to this sort of heresy, that they were almost like two equal powers, two equal entities at war with one another. But God, if he wanted, could just wipe Satan entirely out of existence on the spot. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. And you have to question, I mean, how did this all come about? Mm -hmm. And part of it is that God gave created things free will. Yeah. That's all. Yep. The, the devil had free will to become jealous of God and want to be like God, but he's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He does have power influence, hence the warnings. So the God of this world may well be the devil, but, but God with a small G. Right. Yes. And you can almost think, and you can almost, you know, put in your mind, the Lord, the Lord of this world with a small L. Yeah. The, the Old Testament talks about Baals and Ashram and all these different Baal is just a term that basically means Lord mm. and, and God just means God, the word, but then we, we personalize God. And of course we, we know Jesus by name too. Right. And in the old Testament, he revealed himself as the God who is Yahweh. Right. So, yeah. Right. So it's just a title. Yeah. Yep. Indeed. Okay. All right. Any other closing remarks before we wrap up tonight? One mighty word can fell him. Yes. Yeah, from the great hymn of the Reformation. That, yes. That the devil cannot stand up to God's word. Right. Right. It's okay. a good reminder. It is. It is. Jesus lives, the victory's won. Mm -hmm. From a lovely hymn. So, yeah. Good. We're okay. Yep. We're good. We're good. Christ has redeemed us. And, and, and what was that... Um, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. First John three, eight. Yeah. That's a great, right. that's a great verse. Okay, good. Anything else? No, I think that's it. Okay. Do you want to um, close this off with prayer? Will? Sure. Okay. Thank you. Oh God, in the glorious transfiguration of your only begotten son, you once confirmed the mysteries of the faith by the testimony of the ancient fathers and in the voice that came from the bright cloud, you wondrously foreshadowed our adoption by grace. Therefore, mercifully make us co-heirs with our King of his glory and bring us to the fullness of our inheritance in heaven. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.